January 28, 1649, to Prince Charles, two days before the execution of the king, his father. Book One, The Green Years, 1612-1636 Chapter One No baby, unless it were heir to a throne, could have been more eagerly welcomed. The Lord James Graham was indeed heir to a family of almost royal importance. His father, the fourth Earl of Montrose, was made President of the Privy Council. His grandfather had been Chancellor and Treasurer of Scotland, then Viceroy, kicked upstairs, said his critics, because he had not enough learning as Chancellor. His great-grandfather had fallen in the famous field of Pinky, his great-great-grandfather in the still more famous one of Flodden a yet remoter ancestor at Falkirk by the side of William Wallace. There was even an ancestor that had had something to do with the Roman wall of Antoninus. In short, of all the families that guarded the highland line of Scotland, the family of the Grahams was foremost, so that there was good reason that the Lord James should be born, the only son among five daughters, three of whom had been born before himself. His father led the placid life of a country gentleman, as few of his forebears had done, shooting, playing golf, smoking, and breaking hundreds of clay pipes, and sampling every known variety of tobacco. He ordered his estates with the thrift of a careful husbandman, had full accounts kept, never backed bills, nor pledged his land, nor speculated in the new commercial companies in soap or tanning that were springing up everywhere in this new crazy search for wealth that had seized on the country in these peaceable times. He married the Lady Margaret Ruthven, sister to the mysterious Earl of Gowrie, on whose murdered body had been found a little parchment bag, full of magical characters and words of enchantment. He had been killed by King James's servants in defence of their royal master, it was said, and the dead body was propped up at the delinquent's bar in Edinburgh to stand its trial for high treason. Small eloquence could it show on its own behalf. It was found guilty, and its head condemned to be set on the tollbooth, there to stand till the wind blow it away. This was done on the very day in the year of 1600 that Prince Charles was born at Holyrood Palace, and some thought it an unfortunate omen, both for the royal baby and for the new seventeenth century. From then on, the Lady Margaret Ruthven walked with a defiant carriage, and looked out on the world with implacable eyes. All the friends and relatives of the gentle Graham who became the fourth Earl of Montrose expressed wonder at his rashness in marrying her. Only once before had he had occasion to show the courage of his race, and that was when he set on Sir James Sandilands in the High Street of Edinburgh and avenged a kinsman's murder by a fight to the death with broadswords. And in this, his single act of violence, he also avenged the fact that King James had given to young Sandilands, in token of his fatuous affection for him, the lands that had belonged to the late Earl of Gowrie into whose disgraced, disinherited, and dangerous family the fourth Earl of Montrose was bold enough to marry. For not only did he make himself brother-in-law to the head of a warlock on the tollbooth, but his wife's grandfather had been noted as a necromancer. The lovely Queen Mary, bred up as she had been among the Italian sorceries and juggleries of the French court under Catherine of Medici,
fearless and curious as she was in all matters, had yet not dared in her youth to accept a ring from Lord Ruthven, the Lady Margaret's grandfather. So she had said to some of her suite while hawking near Kinross, for, she said, I know him to use enchantments, and yet he is made one of my privy council. But nothing untoward happened in Lady Margaret's marriage, as far as one knows, the gossips added hopefully. She was inhuman, said the many women who rather feared her, a coolly indifferent wife, a careless mother. She had the eyes of a mermaid and the step of a young stag. There was no man who could keep up with her when she walked over the hills, and often she would walk alone, as no woman should, till far into the night no man knew where, so that she did not allay the uneasy reputation of her family, and the old dreadful stories began to be told again when, at the birth of her son,